Welcome to Everyday Sublime. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad to have you here today. Okay, today's talk that you're about to listen to is a Dharma talk I gave on October 26th as part of the weekly online Sangha offerings that we have, um, we've been offering all fall now. And I'll say more about that in a minute, but the date, October 26th, is just a week before if you're in the United States at least, it's a week before uh, our presidential election. And this in my eyes is likely, very likely, the most important election that I'll ever live through. At least that I, it's the most important election I hope to ever live through. The stakes are extremely high right now. And I know many of you are tuning in from other parts of the world, and I know you appreciate how high the stakes are for us here in the U.S. And so if I can just urge everyone, this podcast goes out on a Monday. If you're listening to this, please, if you are able, please go vote. Uh, if you've Hopefully you've already gotten your absentee ballot in, but please go vote. Everything is on the line. The future of this country, the future of the, the world's climate, so much is at stake. Please vote. And thank you for realizing and actualizing your civic duty. I really appreciate it. Okay, fitting to the times then, uh, this evening's talk was on, it was a continuation on reflections around the Buddha's fourfold teaching on the Four Noble Truths. The talk before this, I covered an experiential exploration of the third truth, namely the cessation of suffering or reality as it is without grasping. And in this talk, I open up what I have come to recognize as really the first encounter one has upon awakening or upon a start starting to wake up. And again, I, in the talk, I talk about how awakening is much of a is a process. It's not a destination. It's not a an endpoint. It's it's an ongoing process within one's life. But the initial stages, the initial aspects of waking up, often involve encountering bitter, hard tacks of pain, disappointment, confusion, and uncertainty. Namely, one encounters the dimensions of, that the Buddha discussed in the first noble truth, or the first aspect of the fourfold teaching, and that is the experience of dukkha. Dukkha is a word that, as I'll get into, is translated often as suffering. But opening to it fully, learning to understand it and metabolize the condition of dukkha, is essential in terms of learning how to more uh, sustain a, an abiding connection with reality as, as it is without grasping or to sustain a connection with the, the more liberated experience of awakening with regards to the third noble truth. So as I see these reflections developing, um, I am starting to imagine that these, these, these themes are going to be explored over several weeks, if not a few months. Um, and I'm really looking forward to diving into the nuance and the practical application and sort of the interrelatedness of all features of this teaching to every other part of this teaching. And, and so it's a, the, the, the teaching in a way is sort of a spiritual hologram. Wherever you look, you see the entirety of it in all its pieces. And as a passive listener here, what one thing you may not appreciate is that uh, part of what's generating the directionality of these talks is the feedback, questions, and dialogues I'm having with people either live or over email from the Sangha. So if you'd like to be more of an active participant in uh, these reflections and the discussions around these teachings, consider becoming a member in our Sangha that Terry and I started online. You can go to www.joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. In addition to these Dharma talks, membership also includes three weekly yoga classes taught by myself and Terry. Uh, Terry teaches a yin yoga qigong class. I teach a pure yin yoga class, and Terry also teaches a yang flow class. 
All those classes and the talks can be attended live, or you can have access to them in our library where we store all the recordings from these uh, offerings. So I hope you are doing well. Stay strong this week. And without further ado, I bring you the Dharma talk entitled The Heavenly Stings. I want to continue on with uh, kind of a, a thematic development that I initiated or began with last week, which is um, I realized over the so far the course of the fall, I've been really leading us into um, some reflections and practices that are, are meant to give a, an immediate glimpse taste of the experience of awakening and what it's like to be awake, even if it's just a fraction of a second. And I tried to start talking about that theme of awakening. And really, it's, I want to be clear, it's a process of awakening, which I don't think ever ends. And I would argue that we're, we're all on various um, sort of places on the path of that, of that process. Um, but I, I, I want to, last week, what I tried to do is to ground that discussion, to, to, to ground the reflection on what it means to be in, involved with a process of awakening. I wanted to ground that discussion in the, the context of what is sometimes referred to as the, the four, four Noble Truths of Buddhism, which are in many ways the, the first articulation that the Buddha seemed to give about what his own awakening was, what he realized when he, when he awoke. Um, but even with that, that name of the Four Noble Truths, as I'll try to get into tonight, I'm not such a, a fan of that uh, nomenclature that that way of naming it describing it because it it sounds like four things that you more or less have to either come into direct contact with or come to a, a sort of a cognitive agreement with or have a recognition that this is an absolute truth and uh, the way I understand the teaching is that these are not absolute statements about anything they're they're very provisional descriptions of what our human experience can be like and the more we kind of use that, that template, or I might call an interpretive structure about making how to make sense of our experience, and we become conscious of that structure, we can then, uh, in, in some ways, become more uh, effective at navigating the experiences that these this 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 fourfold teaching points to. Um, and last week. As I opened up this topic of the Four Noble Truths or the fourfold teaching, is what I'll be referring to it as a fourfold teaching, a single teaching with four interrelated facets. Um, I'd start to begin with the punchline, the punchline to the joke, which is that there is an experience that we have available to us that's 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 right here and now that is free of unnecessary self-generated suffering. That that. Uh, it's possible to realize that through practice and through recognition of how that comes about. And I wanted to start with that, which seems like I'm sort of going out of order. Like, why not start with the first aspect of what the Buddha spoke about? Why, why are we starting with the third? And the reason is that I feel like because without a real tangible taste of what the third noble truth of the experience of cessation of suffering without a tangible taste of what that's like, it's hard to really have something to compare against when we actually encounter our normal experience. It's hard to get a, a, a way of comparing and contrasting what it's like to be free. If even, even a glimmer of freedom, it's, 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 it's hard to have a sense of how to work with our normal life. If we don't have a foothold in another dimension of being or a different um, way of being. And this came out in an interview that I conducted last week, as I mentioned, and, and one of you asked about this before we got going. Um, but I, I spoke with a woman who's a trauma expert and has developed a, a, a model of healing that integrates psychological uh, insights about one's being with an understanding about the, the, the development and etiology of trauma and how spiritual realization, waking up to one's nature, in her words, as fundamental consciousness, how that plays an integral role 
in helping uh, people release themselves and integrate uh, past experiences that they could not integrate, which is sort of how she loosely defines trauma as any experience we have encounter that, that we can't process or integrate when it occurs. And it creates a, a sort of a compensatory contracture or constricture against the dynamics that cause that. And that gets us into a contracted state of, of being where we're very defended and um, and, and not able to, to face the normal ups and downs of, of, of regular life, to put it loosely or and, and, and simply. But even in her model of working with trauma, and I think there's a, there's a real lineup between her description of what trauma is and what the Buddha referred to as our existential suffering or dukkha. I think there's a real lineup between those two experiences. Um, her, her, the reflection she brought forth in the interview is that when people, and I, and I put us all in this category because by talking to her, I realized that most of us have some form of trauma in, in various stages of healing. Um, but in the traumatized, uh, we could say dukkha, that means suffering, but the dukkha uh, experience of being, we tend to take that as who and what we are or the way we are. That, that it feels like a, a, it's such a habitual default of our experience in the world that um, it's very hard to imagine that there's another way to, of being. And uh, so in her model of working with trauma, it's very important for someone to first feel themselves as fundamental consciousness, which is inherently free, safe, and comforting. And from that recognition, from that realization of that dimension of one's being, it, it gives one the wherewithal and the, re the reference point of perspective to then open up and work with the unfinished, unresolved issues of the psychological being that we all have. And um, this, this is very parallel to a sense I've gotten from some of the spiritual teachers I've spoken to recently on the podcast, particularly someone like Locke Kelly, who also talks about beginning with helping people recognize this fundamental dimension of themselves first at the outset, and then opening up to the things that tend to be difficult for that individual in their life or in their practice. Like when, once you have a reference point for a, a safe, calm, collected, still and silent dimension of one's being, whatever our personality structure generates is just that much less terrifying in a way. It's, it's, it's much more workable. So that was part of my rationale for beginning with this reflection on the third noble truth, which is simply, as I tried to say last week, one's experience without grasping. So when there isn't grasping in the mind, when there isn't conditioned or habitual grasping for a pleasant experience or uh, the grasping to get away from some experience or the grasping to become somebody special or someone different from who you are when that those various forms of grasping have been released there's an experience of this moment that is you could say unconditioned by habitual grasping and that is a, a rendering of what is an indicated or suggested by this reflection around the third noble truth where the, the experience of dukkha the experience of suffering is momentarily um, quiescent. It, it, it ceases for a moment or two. So I wanted to begin with that to give you a, a glimpse taste of that potential. And, and my, my contention is that once you get a real taste of that, it's like the, 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 the person who has been um, contracted in a, in a lifetime of a certain traumatic holding, once they get a taste outside of that, I think it will, at least, and this is my, in the case for me, once you get a taste of what it's like to be outside of the burning house, you have a much different perspective and, and motivation for how to work with bringing the burning house to a, a safe dynamic, to put the fires out in a way. And as I was reflecting on the, the talk I shared with you last week, um, I do this afterwards while I'm having my dinner. I, I usually review what I say and and list, try to listen back through my memory for things that may have sounded like wrong notes to me. And uh, this definitely clearly happened for me after our, our last talk together. I was listening in my mind through what I, the things, some of the things I said, and I realized I caught myself in kind of a, a, a flub moment 
where I tried to assert something. And as I tried to assert it with an example, I knew that the thing I was asserting could not be true. And so the example was, I was trying to make this case that waking up, the experience of waking up out of a drifting state or a, a dreamy state or a wandering state, I was trying to assert that the, that the experience of waking up out of that drifting is always intrinsically better. That it's always intrinsically more pleasant. And I tried to give an example. I, I said, you know, you know what it's like when you've been asleep and you wake up and it and I heard myself try to say, and it feels better to be awake than it does to be asleep. And as I said, started to formulate the words, I said, no, no, no. The editor in me said, no, 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 that's not that example is not patently not true. <laughs> and you know, over the week I've just been confronting, confronted by experiences that I've been having where I'm sitting, I drift off, I wake up, and usually what I wake up to is some sort of anxiety, some sort of fear, some sort of repetitive loop that, that I've been in around what I'm trying to do to manage my life, to make it not go off the rails. Um, and then even more so when I've woken up from a, a nap or a night's sleep, I definitely don't feel like I'm in a better place immediately upon waking up. I wake up and there's, a, there's always this almost immediate onslaught of what do I have to do today? What, what needs to be done? And getting into that, the, the gear of, of becoming a productive human being to earn their existence in a way. And so those wheels go, get going very, very quickly. Um, and those, those experiences completely refute the ridiculous proposition I was trying to make, that waking up is always intrinsically better than the drifting dream state that you wake up out of. But as I reflected on it, and really thought about it more, the initial experience of waking up, the initial sort of consciousness of realizing that you're out of something, you're now aware of something. So you're no longer lost in the content of what you're experiencing, whether it's a, a daydream or a, a, like a, a literal nightmare in the middle of the night. But the, the, the initial experience of waking up can either be peaceful, that's a potential, you can you, so like say you're sitting and you, your mind wanders and you you feel the prod of a tingle in your or a little jab of a tingle in your foot and you come back and you realize oh you're just sitting peacefully that's possible it's very possible that that can happen but I think majority of the time at least this is what I've been trying to catalog in my own experience over the week I've been realizing that when I wake up the first thing I become aware of is something not quite right something that I'm feeling a little bit agitated about something. Um, and I think that experience is probably one that you'll be able to relate to, but more importantly, or not more importantly, but also relevant to this is that that experience is sort of codified in the mythological story of the Buddha's own awakening. And it, it and this part of his awakening, I think is worth reviewing or being made aware of so that you can see how that the myth of his awakening patterns into the psychology of your own experience of awakening so and i'll only i'll probably deal with his biography and stages over a few talks but so i want to start tonight with just the beginning of his life or the bits of the, of the mytho mythological aspect of his life that that i've heard and if you've heard this too just just bear with me for a minute um Essentially, before he was born, uh, this man who's named Siddhartha Gautama, uh, what, it was prophesied by uh, like a, a, a seer or a, or a, a mystic of, of his that was connected to his family. It was prophesied to his father that the son that was to be born was either going to become a great world leader or a great world teacher. And the, the Siddhartha's father was a king, so the king naturally wanted his son to continue on with the family business and become a great world leader. Um, he did not want the, the, his son to kind of fall into disrepute and become a teacher in a way. So he set up the father, particularly when the, when the son was finally born, the father set up all these conditions whereby the, the son, Siddhartha, was essentially under house arrest. He couldn't leave the palace, and uh, to make his life within the palace grounds bearable, 
the, the king wanted to ensure that his son had every imaginable sense of pleasure available to him. So he had dancers, he had massage therapists, he had cooks that made delicious foods for him, he had musicians that entertained him. Um, and I was, as I was reviewing this story, I, I dipped into my own narrative, which is that after college, I spent one year in Western India teaching seventh grade, the equivalent of seventh grade, um, in a primary school that was housed in a dilapidated old palace in, in, in central Gujarat. And, you know, I didn't have any of that. I didn't have the dancers. I didn't have the musicians. Um, I did have my meals were cooked for me, believe it or not. That was, that was a luxury. Um, but beyond that, I had, I had rats and bats in my toilet regularly. Um, I had some conditions that were not so nice. So I, like, it's, not, it's, it's not a given that palace life is necessarily going to be a life of cushy pleasure. But in the mythological story, that's the way it's been received, that the, that the Siddhartha had all these delightful uh, pleasures available to him to sort of anesthetize him to his inherited role of, of taking over the regency and becoming king. But as the story goes, at a certain age, he becomes curious. I think it's around his 29th birthday, he becomes curious, and he, he breaks out of his house arrest with the accompaniment of a, of a sort of a, a modern day cab driver who takes him around, drives him around in a, in a, in a carriage around the, 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 the grounds beyond the palace. And it's in this venturing forth from the palace you could say psychologically is venturing forth out of the, the safe, normal um, world that is known by venturing out of that, this character Siddhartha confronts what are referred to as four heavenly messengers, four heavenly messengers. The first three will not sound so heavenly. The first is illness or sickness he confronts somebody who sees somebody that's really not doing well. Second is he confronts somebody who's really getting quite old and struggling, an old man. And then he sees a corpse, someone whose life has expired completely, just on the side of the road. And these are referred to as heavenly messengers because they are these experiences, these, these encounters, these direct confrontations are seen as the very conditions that made young Siddhartha realize that he too was of these, was of these uh, conditions. That he too would possess in his life illness. He too would get old. He too would die. And he, he sort of he needed to sort of gut check it with his with his driver. He said, Is, "Am I of that nature too?" He sort of I can imagine him looking over his shoulder or like tapping the driver on the on the, on the shoulder. He's like, "Is that going to be me? Is that my destiny?" And each time the, the the driver kind of begrudgingly says, "Yes, sir, that is that is your nature too." And it's then when he when the, when Siddhartha confronts the the fourth heavenly messenger, that is that of a, an ascetic a wandering ascetic who has left the worldly home life to follow the path of liberation, to put it in kind of succinct terms. It's upon realizing that there is a path out of a life of illness, sickness, and death. And that became a very compelling um, realization for young Siddhartha. He realized, why would I want to spend all of my energy in life, investing in that which is subject to aging, illness, and death. I heard a variant of this, this, this sort of thought experiment by a, a Dharma teacher from, from, he's based in Hawaii, uh, named Steve Armstrong. And he gave a talk where he said, you know, let's say you're going to make an investment. You're going to go, you're going to call up a financial advisor, you're going to go to the bank, and you want to make an investment in something. And as you're describing the investment, the, the person you're speaking to says, Look, you're going to make this investment, but um, you're going to have to, in, in terms of caring for your investment, you're going to have to brush its teeth every day, maybe twice. You'll have to floss. You'll have to feed it two to three meals a day. You have to get make sure this thing gets adequate sleep. It's going to have to keep it, keep it at, at temperature, and it's going to cost a lot of money when it's cold out to keep it at the right temperature. You have to do all of these things to 
keep your investment healthy. But at the end of the day, uh, all of that investment is just going to go into the ground. <laughs> and so it, it begs the question, like, what can we, how do we live in light of that truth? How do we actually live? And I think most of the things we do that we get really worried about, that we get anxious about, relate to only having a strategy for living that is trying to offset aging, is trying to offset death, trying to like keep these things out of our experience. But these things are, as a teacher of mine, Rodney Smith, said, these things are coming at you faster than a, like, an, the Acela. They're coming at you faster than a speeding train. And when we realize that, um, it becomes an, a moment of reevaluation and really look into the way we're investing our energy. And I don't mean money here. I'm just talking about the things we're giving our attention to, the things we're cultivating in our being. You can really take a close look at that and prioritize this. What I'm trying to share is a path of awakening. Because it, it, the path awakening again is predicated on the fact that it there's a there's a peace there's a well being there's a happiness and a freedom an inherent freedom of existence that's not predicated on getting something or getting rid of something. So that's this is when the Buddha really encountered these things, aging, illness, and death. You know they they shook his world. To its core, they could say they pulled the rug out from under him. The normal, the normal way that he was thinking of moving through his life didn't make sense anymore to him, and so he then left left home and pursued the spiritual path. Um, before I go on, I, I often will do this in training. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll suggest you know think about your own experiences in life that brought you to practice. And the majority of people I speak to, they don't pick up practice because everything was going hunky-dory in their life. It's usually some confrontation with some manifestation of these heavenly messengers, pain, illness, loss, death, despair, depression. It's usually some encounter with those energies, those, those conditions that prod one to seek something that's not suffering. And I, I always try to paraphrase or share a, a statement from Ken Wilber, which I heard many years ago, but it still kind of gives me shivers when I, when I think about it. He said, he, he would say, if you're truly, truly, truly fortunate in life, you will experience a suffering so great that you will Organize all your resources to find the end of that suffering. So the, before he was the Buddha, Siddhartha's first encounter with awakening was not the cessation of suffering. It was not what I was, this reality of non-grasping that I was sharing with you last week. His first encounter with awakening was waking up out of the kind of anesthetized palace life that he had been wrapped and swaddled in and encountering the hard tax of life conditions that we're all going to experience, if not already experiencing. There's a, um, there's a contemporary teacher uh, and translator and monastic named Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, who has written and translated voluminously about the Buddhist teachings. I'm going to share a short passage of, a, of an essay that I found today that he wrote um, on these, this encounter with the heavenly messengers. And uh, just so you can save your request, I will be putting a short reflection on this, this passage uh, in this talk in a, in a newsletter tomorrow. So if you're, as long as you're on the newsletter, you'll get a link to this, this, this citation. But he's referring to this, this story, this narrative, this mythological narrative that I just shared with you, how the Buddha was, was, was born, that he was predicted to become a, either a teacher or a world leader. 
um, he's not put under house arrest. He escapes. He encounters these heavenly messengers of aging, illness, and death. And 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 Bhikkhu Bodhi is reflecting on that. So he says, this charming story, which has nurtured the faith of Buddhists throughout the centuries, it enshrines at its heart a profound psychological truth. In the language of myth, it speaks to us not merely of events that may have taken place centuries ago, but of a process of awakening through which each of us must pass if the Dharma is to come to life within ourselves. I'm going to read that again. The language of the myth, if it's first to speak to us, not merely as just a historical kind of a description of events that may or may not have happened, but if, for it to speak to us as a process of awakening through which each of us must pass if the Dharma is to come to life within ourselves. Beneath the symbolic veneer of the ancient legend, we can see that the Prince Siddhartha's youthful sojourn in the palace was not so different from the way in which most of us today pass our entire lives, often sadly, until it is too late to strike out in a new direction. He continues, our homes may not be royal palaces, and the wealth at our disposal may not approach anywhere near that of a North Indian Raj. But we share with the young Prince Siddhartha a blissful and often willful oblivion to stark realities that are constantly thrusting themselves on our attention. If the Dharma is to be more than the bland, humdrum background of a comfortable life, Bhikkhu Bodhi does not miss, mince words here. If the Dharma is to be more than the bland, humdrum background of a comfortable life, if it is to become the inspiring, sometimes grating voice that steers us onto the great path of awakening, we ourselves must emulate the Buddha in his process of maturation. We must join him on that journey outside the palace walls, the walls of our own self-assuring preconceptions, and see for ourselves the divine messengers we so often miss because our eyes are fixed on more important things, i.e. on our mundane preoccupations and goals. So in practice, in practice, when we actually try to uh, integrate this fourfold teaching into our for sitting formal practice and then use the structure of encounter with this structure that's teaching into our, how to apply it to our life. Um, in practice, often when we wake up, when we become awake and aware that we're sitting after a sojourn into the thought world of drifting and dreaming and wandering, we often wake up to what I'm going to refer to as the heavenly stings. <laughs> like it's, they don't feel like messengers quite yet. They feel like these, in, these conditions that we encounter that feel like they make us think something's wrong. We're not doing something right. And the first one is kind of a reflexive judgment against drifting off itself. And again, I can't say everything in one talk, I, we're, go, we're moving in a direction where eventually, maybe in a week or two or more, we will really be looking at ways to work and how to work with and, and um, uncover what's going on within the drifting phase of meditation process. But for now, I'm, just, I'm going to keep it fairly simple. When one wakes up from having drifted, there's often forms of, of heavenly stings that, are, are we, that we encounter, that we realize. One of them is, is often some kind of disappointment that we drifted off. And with that disappointment and frustration, there's usually some sort of condemnation that we um, try to encourage ourselves and coach ourselves not to do that again. And over the weeks, I've been trying to convey that that experience of drifting off is actually essential. It's not something, it's not material to be uh, denigrated as second class material. It's vital to the whole process, and I will be building on that case as we go. 
But as you wake up, if there's judgment against the drifting off, that's going to be experienced as a heavenly thing. But then you might also start to realize what you are drifting into. You might wake up and realize, ah, just thinking about this thing and I got to sign something in this legal doc. I don't understand the legal terms in it. And, or I, I got to make that dinner and I, I, it's, I don't feel like the dinner tank, but that's what I was planning on making. So you wake up to something that doesn't feel good. And, and then I'm just giving a few placeholders, but you can imagine all the various things that you wake up to that might not feel so good. My, the body might be in discomfort. Your mind might be feeling restless. You might be wondering how much longer is this sitting going to go on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or I'm not getting it right. I'm getting, I don't understand what he's talking about. I'm trying to do it. And I'm not, I don't feel like I'm lining up with what he's saying. There's going to be this rub of discontent. And that feeling of discontent, of something's not quite right, something there's some unsatisfactoriness in your experience, those would all cover the gamut of what the first aspect of this fourfold teaching or the first noble truth is pointing to, that there is this experience of dukkha. Dukkha um, is the Pali word, which literally means, as I may have said before, but it's a word that literally means, refers to a, a hole that through which an axle of a wheel goes through. And if that it's a it, the, the the word dukkha means a it's a bad axle hole. You say that ten times fast, a bad axle hole. It can start to sound like something else, but if there's some experience that doesn't feel like it's 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 a, a good thing, it's a bumpy ride. It produces a bumpy ride. That's a, a sort of an everyday manifestation of this dukkha ball or this dukkha experience. If things are not quite lining up the way we want. And normally, the reflexive response is try to bring it to an immediate, quick resolution. You know, if you're hungry, go eat something. If you're too cold, put something on. If you're too hot, take something off. Open a window. If you got an itch, itch it. If you're worried about something, do something to make so that your worry feels better. There's always a, an, an attendant doing attached to the experience. Like, how do you get yourself out of it? And as a result, most of our life is then spent spinning around, chasing after stuff, hoping that if we can just get our ducks in line, then we'll be able to be worthy of peace, calm, relaxation, and freedom. But the big premise of this fourfold teaching is that the end of dukkha is not through attaining. It's not through getting rid of. It's not through more doing. It's through uncovering the mechanism within the mind that is generating the dukkha. And that's what I'll be looking at next week more. We're going to look more into the second noble truth or the second aspect of this fourfold teaching of the, the various forms of craving that proliferate this agitation in us. But tonight... Building on sort of the instructions from last week, tonight, the basic instruction will be, again, to relax, to be receptive to your experience. And when there's an experience that comes up, and it could be anything, it could be an itch, it could be a, a vague tension that you don't like, or a sense of a mild tension, pressure, headache, it could be anything. But when something comes up that feels problematic, that feels uh, unwelcome, something you wish would just move along so you could have a more peaceful sitting. When there's some encounter with dissatisfaction, rather than reflexively trying to run from it, rather than trying to, uh, to, to technique it away, meaning like to do some specific technique, take a breath or two, and realize that you are encountering, you are, you are literally experiencing the mythological and psychological experience that Siddhartha Gautama was going through over 2,500 years ago, and that countless humans have gone through over the centuries and millennia. That we're tapping into a fundamental experience of the human condition. And rather than sort of, I keep using the word reflexive because reflexive implies a kind of um, 
immediate unconscious reaction. But rather than just reflexively twitching and trying to push it, suppress it, deny it, ignore it. See, my ears here, the Buddha is saying, we need to open up to it. And in this teaching, the, the, this fourfold teaching, there's this, with each, with each aspect, with each four of the four aspects, there's three attendant practices attached to them. They're, they're tasks in a way. The first is just to recognize that it's there when it's there, when there is dukkha, when you experience dissatisfaction, to recognize it, to know that you've recognized it. So it's un, it, you, you're recognizing that you know what it, what it is. And then to know that it's been comprehended, to know that you've understood it, to know that you've, you've opened to it fully. And then from there, we look into what's causing it, what's, what's fueling it, which is what we'll be coming to next week. And then we can experience what it's like when that is put down, when the mechanism of grasping that's agitating the mind is put down. There's a dimension of peace that sort of seeps through us as a result of having let go of the thing that's agitating. So tonight, when we sit, last week, let me review, go back to what we did last week. Last week, the, 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 the main prompt, if you will, the main uh, contemplative practice that I was suggesting was simply to ask yourself from time to time, what is this experience like without grasping? Or what is here when the mind is not grasping at something? And that's meant to give you a firsthand taste of yourself as you are without a, a, an internally generated conflict with your experience. You won't be able to stay in that unless you're fully awake already. I can't stay in that. I'm not stay, I don't stay in that. But you'll get a taste of it. You get a taste of that potential, that possibility. And then to add on this week, either you do this before or after that question, when you encounter something difficult, we can just start to recognize that that's what's going on. And one of the phrases that if you've done a train with me, you know this phrase, but it's a phrase that I'm borrowing from Ajahn Amaro, the, the, uh, the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England. His phrase is to just simply acknowledge this is dukkha, and it's like this. This is dukkha, and it's like this. The key thing there, and, and I don't have enough time to get into it, but the, the key thing about that phrase is that it's, it's not personalizing it. It's not personal in that statement. It's not saying I'm dukkha or I'm experiencing dukkha. I am, you know, it's not saying I have all this dukkha problems. I'm filled with dukkha. What's wrong with me? It's simply a more objective acknowledgement that this is a dynamic of dukkha and it's like this. You don't have to use the word dukkha. You could say, you could substitute the word unpleasant or stress or distress or anxiety. You can get more specific around the different flavors of what your experience might be. But as a catch-all, the word dukkha is pretty useful. You don't even have to worry about how you spell it. It's dukkha or dukkha, dukkha. From opening to it, then you can then drop in the second question. What would it be like? What is this experience without grasping? And as many of you reported to me, that question opened your mind to a dimension right here of, of an experience of being that was already peaceful or already calm or already quiet or already still or already spacious. And you get a taste of what it's like. You can, so you, you, you're in the, you wake up and you, if you feel dukkha, you're realizing that you're in the house that's, if not on fire, is smoky and unpleasant. Drop in the question. It's either it could be a little bit like opening a window for a moment or stepping outside of the house and you get a, a feeling for a different reference point of being. And your practice at this point, it will just be an oscillation back and forth. You're in the dukkha patch. You wake up to it. It's like stepping out of the, out of the known palace walls. 
you're in a, a, a more chaotic, scary world for a moment. You start to experience the, the fear, flight, anxiety within. This is dukkha, and it's like this. So that I want to be I'm intentionally saying this with some space because as you I'm kind of modeling, trying to model how you might consider practicing with this, these reflections. So not just this is dukkha, it's like this. What is this moment without grasping? <laughs> That's a little too formulaic, and and and, um, and I don't want it to be a, a like a a technique-driven formula. I want it to be like sincere reflections, sincere questions and observations that you sit with for some time after articulating them to really feel what is, what is it like when you feel, when you feel something's like the, the, the wheel is giving you a bumpy ride. What is that like? After you sat with that for some time and, and only you will be able to sort of assess how much time is, is helpful. But after you sat with it for a bit, then you can ask, what is here now without grasping? Or, and if, feel free to modify any of these phrases too. So like the question, what is here without grasping? Doesn't, if that doesn't re uh, resonate with you, it could be, what is here now if there's no problem here and now? That's another, another form of a question. But use those two reflections. This is we're now really what if you can, if you follow me, we're we're integrating the very teaching the Buddha gave to describe his own awakening. We're integrating the those aspects of the teaching, the fourfold teaching, into how we navigate and work with experiences that come up as we're sitting in a formal way. And it's important to remember that the formal way is just a practice for to dress rehearsal for our living the way we live and how we are and this is where we will be moving as we go um when we particularly look, start to work with the, with the drifting mind letting more and more of your own life into your practice is a way to start to see how uh, and, and to work with those conditions so that you can see how the practice starts to transform your habitual relationship to normal things in your life which develops a kind of a feedback loop of positive virtuous development. And the, I haven't mentioned it yet, but the, the fourth truth, or the fourth aspect of this fourfold teaching is the path or the eightfold path, which is often presented as something that you have to do to realize the third noble truth or the, the cessation of suffering. Um, I can, I can see the case for that. My own, uh, predilection now is to see the path as something that we integrate our aware our awakening into. That we actually have a we already have a valid taste of awakening, as I tried to say last week with shavasana, or just sitting without any contention in your body and mind for a moment or two. You all have reference points of that taste, and then the question is how do we, how does one integrate that into your life? And that's what I really see the eightfold path pointing to is a is a comprehensive integral way of allowing that new dimension of your understanding and being to integrate into every other aspect of your life and that's again not a there's no end point there that's a process that we 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 work with for as long as we're alive so this is not like the awakening thing is not like we become instantaneous saints and we're, we're like we had that experience and now we're done. It's a, it's a taste and, and, and then that taste can get more and more sustained as we practice more, appreciate it and cultivate it. But even though, even the taste itself is incomplete until it's integrated. And as they say in Zen, you know, you can have the big awakening on top of the mountain, but the, it's an incomplete realization on the mountain until you go back to the marketplace, i.e. your regular life and integrate it fully. And that, that's what I'm trying to say is this on, ongoing process. So let's, let's now shift into the meditation. We'll sit for about a half hour. Um, and I'll give, like as I do, I'll give a little bit of guidance, a review of the instructions as I've been trying to put them together. I'll give that maybe 10 minutes up front, and then there will be a, a, a longer section of silence just to be and 
to be with your experience and to try to apply some of these reflections within your meditation practice. Again, from Bhikkhu Bodhi, if the Dharma is to be more than the bland humdrum background of a comfortable life, if it is to become the inspiring, sometimes grating voice that steers us onto the great path of awakening, we ourselves must emulate the Buddha in his process of maturation. So just as he did 2,500 plus years ago, he sat down one night with a sincere, firm intention to awaken to and then from the conditions that create and generate and proliferate unnecessary suffering. So in the beginning of a sitting, as I review the instructions, you can choose to listen to them or just let them sort of operate in the background of your mind. But the first set of instructions I was trying to give this fall were around cultivating a friendly, kind, relaxed reception of your experience as it is. So we begin with this receptive disposition, not as a hard rule, meaning that we, we can't ever intentionally direct our attention to something or we can't turn away or those are the all dynamics of playing your edge with your experience. But we just begin with a gentle, kind reception, receptivity. so that we can be able to connect with the totality of who we are. And as a support to this receptive presence. Some of you may find it very beneficial and helpful to, to identify within your experience a, a neutral perch of experience that you can let your attention rest upon. This isn't something that you keep your attention glued to as a rule. This is just a place that's, that's relatively neutral and safe that you can let your attention land upon as and when you feel that is helpful or indicated. So it might be your hands resting on your lap. And last week we talked about letting your hands turn up with the fingers relaxed kind of mirror or, or pattern into the mental psychological letting go of grasping.
and at least in some of the emails you've been sharing, many of you have enjoyed resting with the hands somewhat more than the breath because the, the hands don't have as much performance involved or doership. But if you're a, a seasoned breath watcher, by all means, use the breath as a perch to let your attention come to. Or you could just feel your body in general sitting. This next one won't sound like a perch because it's a little bit less tangible. But one potential perch, which I really like and use frequently, is just the field of listening. So opening to the world of sounds around you and within you is, a, is something that can function like a perch. You don't have to land your attention on a concrete sensation. You just let your mind open to the experience of listening. And if you're on the newer side to these, these sessions, I encourage you know trial and error with working with these different perches. Find, spend some time with each of them. You can, you can cycle through them during a sitting, like tonight, or you could just stick with one for a while and then try another another week or so. But find out which which of these seems to be temperamentally suited for your mind. And one of the ways you'll evaluate that is, is resting your attention on this conducive to relaxed awareness. And so from the perch, the idea is to let your experience unfold naturally. And part of the natural unfolding will be to experience yourself departing from the perch and thinking about things. That's the drifting phase. And that is completely not just allowed, but it's encouraged. I encourage it. Welcome whatever thoughts want to come in. Welcome yourself to explore them. That is an activity. The willingness to do that is a gesture of kindness. Where you're not cutting off or interrupting thoughts. You're generously listening. as I've said in past sessions, what brings you out of that dynamic, what brings you out of the drifting will be the world in some form waking you up. The body may issue a demand or a concern. The environment may issue a sound that startles you or brings you back. Or the pitch of your own thinking might get so sharp at some point that it, it, it actually bursts you out of being lost in it. You suddenly realize, wow, this is really hectic. This is intense. Well, I'm in a really heavy stream here. And suddenly you're out of it. Whatever it is, whenever you can remember, again, that's the key layer of the word sati, which is often translated as mindfulness, but the, the root of the, of the word sati means to remember, to remember to hold something in mind. And so when you do wake up, plant an intention just to remember to check out what you're waking up to. 
What's it like when you wake up? It's totally possible that you could wake up and find yourself experiencing a calm, steady, comfortable experience. That can happen. But oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes there will be a way that we wake up to a heavenly sting. A condition in our body, mind, that we, if we're really honest, we'd rather it not be there. We'd like to get past it, beyond it. And it's precisely that experience that activates the mythical and psychological awakening of, of the Buddha in us. We are coming in alignment with the very same conditions that catalyzed his own awakening. And unlike Siddhartha, we have his map in our pocket. We experience a heavenly sting, which will feel more like a worldly or hellish sting initially. This is dukkha, and it's like this. calmly acknowledging with kindness the hard tack of this dynamic. This is dukkha and it's like this. And from articulating that phrase, allow yourself to feel into what transpires simply from the clear, sober recognition of that condition. What happens in the knowing? And then as a follow-up question that you can use from time to time, you could ask, inquire, what is this moment free of grasping? Or what is here and now without grasping? And then one final small other suggestion is from time to time, remember the possibility of having a soft inward smile. It's not gratuitous that in nearly all of the images and statues that depict the Buddha upon awakening. He's depicted with a smile. Tasting reality without grasping, it's that taste that is intrinsically pleasant. But for many, it's through the doorway 
of these heavenly stings. It facilitates and opens us to this dimension of non-grasping. Okay, that was the evening programming for the week of October 26th. Again, if you'd like to join uh, the Sangha as a beneficiary or sustaining member, head over to joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A, and you can be part of our conversation with us. Have a wonderful week. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Stay strong and practice on.